The way you guard a treasure reveals how much you actually treasure it. I think that principle is all the more obvious when you consider the difference between guarding the local shopping mall versus guarding Fort Knox. On one hand, you have security guards with their walkie-talkies leisurely strolling around on those segways. On the other, you have a brigade of trained soldiers armed with assault rifles protecting our nation's gold depository. And I am sure that the level of dedication and sacrifice that they put into the task is going to differ greatly compared to mall cops. It really comes down to the question of value. The more we value something, the more we're going to put, put into the task of guarding that very thing. And so if you add up all the worth of all the, the stores within a mall, it still pales in comparison to a vault that contains, at last count when I looked it up, $261 billion worth of gold. But friends, do you realize that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have been assigned with the task of guarding a deposit infinitely more valuable than gold. We as the church have been given the noble task of guarding the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, not from theft per se, but from tweaking, from twisting, from tampering. We have to guard against any attempt by anyone to teach any different doctrine than what has been once for all delivered to the saints, handed down from the apostles themselves. That's really the burden of this letter, the burden of 1 Timothy. If you notice, Paul immediately charges Timothy in chapter 1, verse 3, to keep certain people from teaching any different doctrine. And he says, if you turn later on to chapter 4, right in the middle of the letter, in chapter 4, verse 16, he tells Timothy to keep a close watch on his life and on the teaching, on his doctrine. And then he concludes the letter at the very end in chapter 6, verse 20, telling Timothy to guard the deposit that has been entrusted to him. And so what we see is that in the beginning, in the middle, and in the end of this letter, Paul is calling for a vigilant defense of sound doctrine here in the church of Ephesus. So as we begin a new sermon series going through this book, I think it's important that we get our bearings straight and we figure out the, the main idea of 1 Timothy. And thankfully, in some books, the author just directly says exactly why he's writing. That's the case we find here. So if you turn with me to chapter 3, verse 14, Paul explains to Timothy why he left him in Ephesus to pastor this church and why he's writing to him now. Look at verse 14. It says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So Paul is trying to help his disciple Timothy to put the Ephesian church in the right order during his absence, before he comes back again. So he's teaching here how Christians ought to behave in the church. Isn't that what it says in verse 15? The church being the household of God. This letter, as we're going to find, is filled with instructions on how to live a rightly ordered life in a rightly ordered church. 
which is why we call this sermon series the Rightly Ordered Church. There are six major matters in this letter that all have to do with the church. If you want to uh, just get a, a big overview of each of the chapters, if you want to write this down, I'll, I'll give you a summary of all six chapters. Chapter one addresses the church's doctrine. Chapter two, that discusses the church's worship. Chapter three is about the church's leadership. Chapter four focuses on the church's godliness, especially that of its leaders. Chapter five is about the church's familial care, care for one another as family. And chapter six addresses the church's contentment and its attitude towards earthly riches. So that's, that's a good summary of this letter. And our hope and prayer is that the Spirit of God is going to use our study of this letter to order us rightly. We want to be a rightly ordered church. In particular, as we consider today, chapter one, we want to be a church with rightly ordered doctrine, rightly ordered teaching. But to what end? To what purpose? So that we can boast about having good theology? Of course not. We want rightly ordered doctrine because according to chapter 3, verse 15, it says that the church is a pillar and buttress of the truth. What that means is that the church's job is to support the truth of God much like a buttress supports and stabilizes a building. So when every wind of doctrine comes storming at us, the church's task is to hold steady the word of God, to buttress, to bolster the truth. Likewise, the church functions as a pillar, as a column of the truth. The purpose of ancient Greek pillars was not just to hold firm a roof, but it was to thrust that roof high up into the air for all to see. Even from a far distance, you could see the roof. The Ephesians, I think, had a little trouble understanding this illustration because they, in their city, they housed the famous Temple of Artemis, which is one of the, the seven ancient wonders of the world. And the Temple of Artemis had a hundred ionic columns, each over 60 feet high, lifting up high into the sky a marvelous marble roof that captured the attention of anyone entering the city, even from a great distance. And so that means for us, as the church, we are to be a pillar of the truth in that we lift high God's truth. We display it for all the world to see, for all the world to admire and ultimately to believe on for their hope and salvation. And so friends, if you value the truth of God in the gospel as more precious than, than a fortress filled with gold, and if you value people, especially those who, who don't yet see the goodness and beauty of God's truth, then supporting and displaying that truth is all the more imperative. So my point here is that safeguarding sound doctrine, which is what we're going to be talking about this morning, safeguarding it in the church has a very missional aim. It has a missional purpose. It's not just about getting all of our theological ducks in a row. It's really about displaying the goodness and the beauty and the truthfulness of Jesus for all the world to see. That's our heart. That's what we're trying to do. And so now as we consider 
chapter 1, verses 1 to 11, what I want to do is to highlight five reasons why, from this text, that a church must be vigilant to safeguard sound doctrine. If you want to follow along, look in your bulletins, you'll see an outline listing those five reasons. The first is this. The first reason we are to be vigilant to safeguard sound doctrine is because false doctrine so often arises from within the church. Sadly, the greatest heresies in the church have always come from within. In the second century, the idea that the Bible, the books of the Old and New Testament were all divinely inspired by God and that they contained timeless, unchanging truth, that idea was being challenged. And guess who was leading the charge? Not a non-religious skeptic, but actually a bishop named Marcion. In the fourth century, there was a popular teaching gaining ground that affirmed Jesus to be a good teacher, to be a good man, but denied that he was divine, denied that he was equal with God. Now, that sounds like what many outside the church would describe Jesus today, but this was actually being taught by a prominent priest in the church of Alexandria named Arius. And in the fifth century, the doctrine of original sin the idea that we're, not, we're all sinners, not just by, by, by our deeds, but by our very nature. The doctrine of original sin was being strongly rejected, not by a secular humanist, but by a British monk named Pelagius. And so it's easy. It's easy to blame outspoken atheists and secularists and, and leaders of, of other world religions for eroding Christian faith, but in reality, the chief opponents of Christian orthodoxy have always come from within, from within the flock. The common analogy in the New Testament is to compare these false teachers with wolves, as wolves in sheep's clothing, as Jesus puts it. In the book of Acts, in chapter 20, as Paul is saying farewell to the Ephesian elders, he charges them to be good pastors who protect the flock of God. He says to them, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So did you hear what he said? These wolves will come not from the academic elite or the mainstream media or Hollywood, but from among your own selves. They'll be in sheep's clothing. They'll look like us. They'll talk like us. But they'll speak twisted things trying to draw us away from Jesus. I think it's quite sad that it really only took five years, according to most estimates of when 1 Timothy was written, five years for Paul's prediction to come true. Because if you look with me in our text, in chapter 1, verse 3, he says, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine." It's very likely these certain persons he's referring to were elders in the church of Ephesus. They're identified later as teachers in 1 Timothy. The very letter makes it clear that the responsibility for a church's teaching belongs to the elders. 
And so if these false teachers did arise from their elders, then that explains why Paul goes on to cover the qualification of elders in chapter 3 and and how you discipline them if they persist in sin in chapter 5. He already had to deal with two elders himself. He he names them at the end of chapter 1. And now he's charging Timothy to finish the job and to discipline the remaining wolves who are in sheep's clothing. And so, friends, because of this warning, because of this reality, that's why we have made it such a point at HCC to scrutinize the soundness of a man's doctrine before hiring him as a pastor or appointing him as a lay elder. With pastoral candidates, it's always been done by the staff through an interview testing his doctrine. More recently, we've been trying to get our lay elders involved in that process, and now we've been requiring candidates to fill out doctrinal questionnaires. And that same questionnaire is something we're now asking new elder candidates to also complete. Yes, the bar is high, but no higher than what Scripture calls for. Because if he's going to be a shepherd of the church, then he's got to be sound in the essentials of the faith. And not only that, he also needs to know how to theologically engage with contemporary issues. How would he respond to issues like theological pluralism or moral relativism? Is Jesus the only way to God? Is sex only for the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman? We need good and faithful elders who know how to engage, who know how to safeguard these doctrines which are being tested and confronted in our day all the time. And on a personal level, for each of you, you need to carefully discern the kind of spiritual teaching that you are digesting on your own. Please take heed of which TV preachers that you watch or whose sermons you podcast and whose books you read just because someone has a title or a following or a big ministry doesn't mean that they're impervious to teaching falsehood. As we see here in 1 Timothy, false doctrine could very well come from within. And so that leads to the second reason we have to be so vigilant to safeguard sound doctrine. First, because false doctrine often arises from within the church. And second, because it often comes in different forms. I see two general forms described here in our text. The first form of false doctrine is teaching that's just plain different from the essentials of the faith. If you look back at at verse 3, that verbal phrase, to teach any different doctrine, that's actually just one word in the Greek. It's heterodidaskaleo hetero teaching, the daskaleo just teaching, hetero teaching, different teaching. It's where we get the term heterodoxy as opposed to orthodoxy. And it shows up again later in chapter 6, verse 3. It's teaching, if you look in chapter 6, verse 3, look there, it's teaching that disagrees with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. And so what this is implying is that there is a standard body of teaching that was being passed down from the Lord Jesus himself to his apostles who are now entrusting this good deposit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. From Jesus himself to the apostles to faithful men, 
these elders who are going to be teaching it to others. This good deposit is what we would call the historic orthodox, orthodox truths of Christianity. Now, the center of orthodoxy is, of course, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's all about what the eternal triune God has accomplished within human history through the person and the work of his own son to redeem sinners and to reconcile them to himself and to each other in one body in the church. These orthodox truths are are beautifully captured in the ancient creeds of the church, like the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, which we often recite in our corporate worship. But in every generation, there arises new versions of the same old attacks, offering different takes on the Trinity, different takes on on the dual nature of the incarnate Son, on the personhood and the work of the Holy Spirit, on the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ for sinners, on the reality of sin itself or judgment or hell. These are sound doctrines that we're always going to have to contend for. Every generation of the church, we will be contending for these things. And as Protestants, as spiritual children of the Reformation, we have to safeguard the key doctrines that we looked at last October that are known as the five solas. We believe in Scripture alone as our final authority, faith alone as our only means to be justified by a holy God, Grace alone is our only hope of salvation. Christ alone is our only mediator. And God alone deserves all the glory in our salvation. Our job is not to revise these truths for every new generation, but to faithfully pass them down from one generation to another. And look, I understand if this whole idea of safeguarding sound doctrines sounds quite intimidating to you, but I wonder if it's because when you hear that, you think I mean debating people. You you think it means confronting people, confronting false teachers and and engaging in apologetics, and, and that intimidates you. Now, some of you might be called to do that very thing, but you know, God's primary strategy for all believers to take part in this, to take part in safeguarding sound doctrine, is simply this. It's to take the time to learn the historic, orthodox truths of Christianity for yourself. So go, go find a more seasoned believer and ask him, ask her to disciple you in these matters. Let me give you a suggestion. Why don't you get a copy of Wayne Grudem's book, Christian Beliefs. Christian Beliefs, subtitle, 20 Basics Every Christian Should Know. And read that together. Read it with someone. And once you feel grounded in these doctrines, then why don't you pass it on? If you're a parent, start with your children. Otherwise, just pass it on to anyone who's younger than you in the faith. The important thing is to pass on the good deposit unchanged, unaltered, exactly as you receive it from God's own word. So there's the more obvious form of false doctrine that we just talked about that teaches heterodoxy, but friends, there's also another form that's much more subtle, but also quite damaging. And that's teaching that's speculative without much grounding in Scripture. 
And this is really what was happening in Ephesus. If you look in in verse 4, Timothy is to confront those who have devoted themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Now, commentators aren't quite sure what the specific myths and genealogies in question were, but because if you read in Titus chapter 1, verse 4, where Paul is dealing with a very similar situation, he calls them in that letter Jewish myths. It's likely that we're dealing with teachers in the church who were preoccupied with fanciful stories of, of these minor characters that you would find in these Old Testament genealogies. And so instead of being good stewards of God's word, instead of teaching people to put their faith in the promises of God found in the Old Testament, now these teachers were just stoking curiosity by by, by mere speculations loosely derived from Scripture. So, you know, if if an artist wants to write a fictional account of Jesus' childhood, or about the life and adventure of some minor biblical character, that's fine as long as it's understood as pure fiction. But what's troubling, what's troubling is when teachers in the church develop whole theologies and and practices of, of spiritual disciplines, practices of things like prayer based on a very minor Old Testament character who only shows up in two verses in the whole Bible. talking about the prayer of Jabez, or basing a whole theology on prayer and and practice of prayer on some obscure first century Jewish scholar mentioned in the Talmud. That's from the book, The Circle Maker. And these are actually very popular books within Christian bookstores. But that's the kind of speculative teaching that plays fast and loose with Scripture, and it tends to promote false doctrine. So church, again, we have to be on guard. We have to carefully discern the teaching that we receive. And I think what helps is for you to familiarize yourself with enough scripture so that, when, so that you yourself can tell when the teaching that you're receiving is based just on mere speculation and not grounded actually in the word. And so here's my tip for you. Why don't you go on our website, look under our resources tab, and find the various Bible reading plans that we recommend, and make a commitment this new year to utilize one of those plans, to familiarize yourself with the Word of God that you might be able to discern if what you're hearing is just mere speculation. Now, the third reason a church must be vigilant to safeguard sound doctrine is this. This is the third reason, because of the way that false doctrine can distract and destroy a church. It distracts us from that task of lifting high the truth of God up in the air like a pillar. And in time, if not checked, false teaching will rot a church. If we keep reading, chapter 1, verse 5, we see that good elders who exercise good stewardship, what they aim at is not speculation, but love. Verse 5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion. That means our concern for sound doctrine should really come from a deep concern for people, for their hearts to be pure, 
for their consciences to be clean, for their faith to be sincere. But you see that these false teachers in Ephesus, they swerved from those concerns, and they, they wandered away, leading others into empty, vain discussions. And that's got to be our concern as well. As, as a church, we should seek to make our doctrinal convictions sound and clear by def- de- defining what we actually believe as a church so that we might be able to preempt any, need- any needless theological controversies that are going to distract us from our mission as the church, our mission, which is to hold up and to hold out God's truth for all the world to see and believe on. That's what we gather every Sunday to focus on. That's what we're sent out to do Monday through Saturday. That's our mission. Let's not be distracted by needless, vain discussions and controversies. Let's make our doctrine clear so we know what we believe, and together we can go out and be that pillar of the truth. In his second letter to Timothy, Paul alludes to something similar when he says to avoid irreverent babble, babble, vain discussion, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. And so not only does this false teaching distract us, it destroys us. Like gangrene, it will spread and will eventually kill the body. It's the very definition of unsound doctrine. It's unhealthy doctrine. When we say someone is of sound body and mind, it means they're healthy. So sound doctrine is healthy doctrine that encourages and enables healthy growth within a church. It's about the health of one another. And so this is really a needed reminder for those of you who, if you're like me, you just enjoy learning theology and talking about theology, discussing it, and and of course making sure to safeguard it. But again, we always have to keep asking ourselves, to what end? Does our theology merely puff up our ego? Or does it build up the body with love in health? Healthy theology is applied theology that speaks to people where they're at in all of their brokenness. Sound doctrine speaks to heavy hearts that long for purity. It speaks to burdened consciences that seek relief and to weak faith that wants to be sincere. And so, friends, I ask you, are you applying your theology to real-life people with real-life problems? That question leads us directly to the fourth reason we have to safeguard sound doctrine, because sound doctrine encourages sound living. This is the fourth reason. If we look back at chapter 6, verse 3, it refers to sound doctrine that, quote, accords with godliness. Sound doctrine accords with godliness. That means godly sound doctrine should correspond with sound, godly lives. The two should be in accord with each other. So I think that there really is a subtle difference between having right theology versus sound theology. What I mean is that you can know all the right things about God, about man, 
about salvation, about the church, about end times. But if that theology doesn't translate into a life of godliness, then your theology might be right, but it's far from sound. Look, look back at chapter 1, verses 9 to 10. And Paul here gives us a vice list of, of heinous attitudes and behaviors, but notice how he ends the list at verse, um, in verse 10. Notice how he ends. He says, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. And so this unsound kind of living he's describing is contrary to sound doctrine. So if your theology is not just right, but it's actually sound, then what he's saying is that your life won't be characterized by what we find here in verses 9 to 10. Rather, there will be a soundness, a healthiness to your life where your attitude and obedience to God's law will be growing in a healthy manner. So think about this. If sound doctrine and sound living accord with each other, then that means your behavior is a true barometer of your beliefs. Your behavior is a true barometer of your true beliefs. How you actually live tells us more than what you say you believe. And so here we have to watch both our life and our doctrine. We have to be committed to soundness in both regards, life and doctrine. But what makes the difference? That's the question. What makes the difference between merely having right theology versus sound theology? Well, I think I can answer that by considering our final reason for safeguarding sound doctrine. Because, fifth reason, because sound doctrine keeps our teaching gospel centered. It focuses our attention on Jesus, and particularly on his saving work on behalf of sinners. This is what I think Paul means um, by the right use of the law, as he mentions in verse 8. You see, these, these self-appointed teachers of the law, they were failing to use the law lawfully. We're going to see later on when we get to chapter 4, that they were forbidding things like marriage and the eating of certain foods. And so their teaching promoted a form of more morality that, that uh, looks godly on the outside. It looks godly in appearance, but was void of true spirituality that translates into sound spiritual living. So let's look at verse 8 as, uh, as Paul addresses these so-called teachers of the law. Um, and I think Paul is saying that sound teachers with sound doctrine will know how to teach God's law properly. That is, they'll be able to teach it in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. You see that at the end of verse 11. That sound teaching of the law, sound use of the law is in accordance with the gospel. In other words, sound teachers know how to teach the law of God in a gospel-centered manner. So read with me. Let's start in verse 8. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, 
the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. You know, the reformers taught that Christians are no longer under the law. That is, we're no longer under the just condemnation of the law because of the gospel, because of what Christ has done to fulfill the law on our behalf, both its requirements and its punishments through his substitutionary life and death for sinners. But the reformers also taught that Christians, though we are not under the law in that sense, we are not free of God's law as if it has no more relevance to us, as if it has no more authority over us. They taught, no, that there are actually three proper uses of the law. Three uses of the law. First, it restrains evildoers. Second, it convicts sinners. And third, it trains saints. Restrains evildoers, convicts sinners, trains saints. So in that first use, the law, the law of God, functions as a deterrent, restraining us to some degree from sinning, from behaving worse than we possibly could. In this sense, the law is like a locked door, or quite literally, it's like a jail cell, keeping evildoers from doing a greater extent of evil. In the second use, in the second use, the law is a handmaiden to the gospel. It convicts sinners of their sin, and it prepares them to receive the gospel. So in this sense, the law really functions like a mirror. You look at it, you read the law of God, and it reveals things about you. It reveals your sin. You finally see yourself as you really are, as a sinner in need of a Savior. And in the third use, the law of God teaches and trains those who have trusted in Jesus, those who have received his spirit, who enables true obedience to the law. And so in this sense, the law is like a tutor, training saints, correcting and directing our lives towards godliness. So Paul's words, I believe here, really touch on all three of those uses. When he says, when he says in verse 9, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, and so on and so forth. Yes, it seems like he has the first use in mind, and I, I believe he does, that the law is laid down as a deterrent to restrain evildoers. But if you think about it, his words would also apply to that second and third use of the law as well. You see, when you look at the law of God, or you just look at a list like this here in 1 Timothy, and if you, if you walk away after reading this, congratulating yourself for not being as bad as these people listed here, yeah, you're not using the law properly. You're not reading it lawfully. If you assume you're that just man in verse 9, or you're that righteous woman for whom the law was not laid down, it was laid down for all those other people, you've missed the point. It's kind of like when Jesus said that he didn't come for the well, but for the sick. Like he didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. 
when he said that, he, he didn't mean that there are some of you who are actually well and righteous and who have no need of him. No, what he meant is that you're all sick. We're all sinners. That means we're all found somewhere here in this list in verses 9 to 10. And so to properly use the law means that we use it to see the reality of of our great sin, but as well, we see our need for the greater mercy of God that's promised in the gospel. And as, as recipients of his mercy for Christians, for those who have received his spirit who helps us to obey and to actually keep the law, that's, that's how we use a list like this in a proper manner, in that second or that third use. And that's really what keeps us centered on the gospel and avoiding the error of, of either legalism or lawlessness. So my point is that there, there are ways, unfortunately there are ways of teaching the law, teaching verses 9 to 10 here, or just teaching the Bible in general, that it may be right, like th- there may be nothing heretical being spoken, and, and, and what's being promoted might be good biblical behavior, but if that kind of teaching that you hear doesn't actually point people to Jesus, if it doesn't encourage greater faith in the work of Christ in the gospel, well then, regardless of how right it sounds, it is far from being sound teaching rooted in sound doctrine. So church, I don't want us to just be right. I want us to be sound. I want us to commit ourselves to safeguarding sound, gospel-centered doctrine as a church. It safeguards the gospel, the very gospel that we are called to lift high and to display beautifully for all the world to see.